0: Welcome to Auckland Conversations, ideas for becoming the world's most livable city.
1: Good evening, Kia ora. Tenekoto, 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 Katoa. Good evening, everybody, and, and welcome. Um, welcome, to, welcome to this evening's uh, Auckland Conversations, Building Bridges, Not Walls. Um, we're very proud and uh, brought to you uh, by uh, the Human Rights Commission and Auckland Council and uh, we're really delighted to have a, a, a speaker of such uh, incredible inspiration tonight, uh, Dr. Jill Hicks, but we'll, uh, we'll come back to Jill in a minute. Um, I am Ludo Campbell-Reed, I am uh, Council's design champion. I'm also the proud sponsor of the Auckland Conversations series, um, and I'm also the general manager of uh, what we're calling the Auckland Design Office, so uh, responsibilities for urban design across the, the Auckland region. And uh, I'm very proud to be here tonight um, the Auckland Conversation series aims to inspire, to inform, uh, to educate, and to, to entertain. And tonight's uh, conversation, I don't believe will it'll be absolutely wonderful, and I think it'll it'll do everything justice to that. Um, but firstly, I'd like to um, say we're live streaming tonight's event. Uh, so the idea really around that is to tell the story a little bit more widely than just Auckland, and to help our the conversation around the globe. So we'll be live streaming the events around the world. And tonight for the first time we have um, um, some signage, um, speech signage um, interpreters to help the conversation flow and to also get the message out there to all those that need to hear it. So um, I um, firstly want to um, ask you all to show your appreciation of our fantastic and generous uh, sponsors. Um, In particular, Resine, and Jib, so would you all put your hands together and and thank. I'd also like to uh, thank, extremely thank our uh, program uh, supporters and the names are all up on the screen, there's quite a few of them. Um, So I was just talking to the the lady from Connect and uh, we'll try and just go through those. But do we have a, a slide for the program sponsors? Here they come, slowly. Next slide, please. Nope. Okay. Oh, here we go. <laughs> okay, so there's Resine. Uh, so thanks to those guys. The next slide, please. So you can see that we're doing these these uh, these open conversations. You know, funded by a whole group of allies across the industry. Uh, so I'd like to uh, thank the um, the Architectural Designers Institute, MR Cagney, uh, the New Zealand Planning Institute. Bofa Miskell, Brookfield's Lawyers and also the New Zealand Institute of Architects. So, thank you very much to those guys, would you mind uh, putting your hands together? (laughs) So on to this evening, Um, there's nothing really more central to a a livable city uh, than its people and in all their diversity and uh, and abilities and I've always gone back to the, the wonderful saying Uh, that William Shakespeare talked about, which is, what is a city but its people? And in Auckland and New Zealand, we talk about hetangata, hetangata, hetangata. What is the most important thing? It is people, it is people, it is people. I've often thought that uh, most planners and architects should be psychologists before they become uh, those professions because at the end of the day, if you understand people, you understand how to design great cities for, for them. And I guess, set against the backdrop of of massive urbanization around the world, climate change, an aging and increasingly diverse population, we must ask the question, how do we as Aucklanders and as global citizens, how do we deal with this? Um, And how can we physically and psychologically design our city to cope with such demands? So tonight, we are extremely fortunate to have an amazing speaker with us. Um, the inspiring and design-savvy Dr. Jill Hicks, who can help us start to answer some of these questions and to stimulate debate. Jill is in Auckland to speak at the New Zealand Diversity Forum, which took place yesterday and was organized by the Human Rights Commission, um, who we um, partnered with tonight to bring you the series. And we feel very privileged to have her speak to us. But before Jill comes to the stage, I'd firstly like to talk about accessibility, just briefly, not only as design champion, but also as a member of a, a group called the Fab 50 Network, which is um, a team that's been set up by the Be Accessible. Uh, Mini Baragwath and the team um, have chosen so 50 prominent New Zealanders to champion accessibility across the country and across the region, and I'm just very proud to be a member of that, that team. Um, but before Jill comes to the stage, I want to talk a little bit about the Auckland Design Office and the plans we have around accessibility. and and universal access in particular, Um, you may have noticed a small little stand at the back of the the auditorium. It's it's developing up a a universal design hub, and um, the Auckland Design Office is is promoting universal design as a fundamental requirement for delivering a livable city, which in part will help us address some of the issues that Jill will touch upon during her talk. As part of our department's disability action plan, and all council departments are preparing one at the moment, we have established a universal design forum which brings together professional institutes and interest groups and organisations to develop a shared advocacy for Universal Design City. And, and we are very, very close to appointing a, a new universal design leader who will drive the issues and champion those across the organisation. The Auckland design manual within which this universal design hub will sit um, is, is going to be there to use to, be, to support the forum and working with it to develop new tools, new training and new guidance to help designers and clients to adopt universal design much more quickly and much more easily. We want to sort of try to demystify it. This will help support Auckland wide approach to design which incorporates all life stages and scenarios to disability and beyond, including pregnancy, childhood, injury and older age. We shall be launching the content for engagement later this month on the ADM site and invite everybody to contribute their thoughts and ideas on what else we could do to support designing our city for all and for everybody. So now, onto the main event tonight, I'd like to welcome Dane Susan Devoy to introduce Dr. Jill Hicks. Dame Susan, DNZM CBE, has worked across the sport community and charity sectors since she retired undefeated as the world's women's squash champion in 1992. I believe she was seven times champion. Um, some of my team remember you, Susan, actually on TV um, back in the 80s. And well, I'm told that you were on television in the 80s and uh, um, watching squash on the 80s. And I don't think squash has ever been watched so often uh, on television, so that's fantastic. A member and chair of the Halberg Trust, patron of the Muscular Dystrophy Association of New Zealand and other charities, Dame Susan was the Chief Executive Officer and Chair of the Sport Bay of Plenty. She has served on the Auckland District Health Board, the Tauranga Energy Consumer Trust and chaired BNZ Partners Bay of Plenty. Since her appointment in April 2013 to the Office of the Race Relations Commissioner, Dame Susan has taken a high-profile role in encouraging New Zealanders to take personal responsibility for race relations and to stand up for victims of racial abuse. Dame Susan, it's been a privilege and I'd like to welcome you to the stage.
2: Namahinui, mahana kia Acknowledgements and warm greetings to you all. Australian designer Jill Hicks was heading to work just over 10 years ago when her life was changed forever. A suicide bomber called Jermaine detonated a device less than a meter from where Jill was standing. Incredibly, Jill survived and after the terrorist attack, she dedicated her life to peace and the power of the individual. Everyone can make a difference. It is poetic justice that an act of terrorism gave the world an unforgettable and inspirational advocate for peace and human rights. Two years after the bombing, Jill founded the not-for-profit organisation MAD, Making a Difference for Peace, a platform that connects people globally and encourages us to think of peace as a verb, something that we have an individual responsibility to do every day. In parallel, her work confronting violent extremism through counter-narrative and communication is at the forefront of current international thinking. She has many accolades, Australian of the Year in the UK 2009, and Australian Woman of the Year in the UK 2009. She's been awarded an MBE, South Australian of the Year, Carrier of the Olympic Torch, and Ambassador for Peace Direct, but there's another title that I know she is most proudest of. As if building world peace wasn't enough, two two and a half years ago, Jill and her partner Carl, another designer, welcomed their daughter Emily into the world. Jill told media that becoming a mum to Emily was one of the best things to ever happen to her and that it changed her life. Yesterday at the Diversity Forum, Jill spoke to many people and after her address, they said that Jill had changed their lives. Here are a few of their comments. She makes me want to be a better person. She makes me want to start yesterday. I am in awe of Dr Hicks. I will never forget the moment she started talking, and she has changed my life. She says, think of peace as a a verb, and I say, if peace was a person, its name should be Jill Hicks. And I have to agree with them. It's not often you meet someone and realize that you are meeting a person who is changing the world and challenging all of us to be better, to honour life, and to honour each other. It's my honour and my pleasure to introduce to you Dr Jill Hicks.
0: Well, if that didn't already set you off into tears, I know that um, it certainly did me, and um, I possibly should join you with a glass of red wine sitting with you. Um, I find introductions very difficult to sit through, and mostly because I'm such an ordinary person who found herself in such an extraordinary situation. And never... Am I um, ever, uh, I I should say, I'm always mindful of the the great privilege it is to ever be given a platform. And not everyone gets an opportunity to share uh, their insights, their learning, their experience. So I am always grateful and always very humbled by the privilege to be able to stand and be able to stand before you. Um, Also this evening is a bit of a clash of worlds for me. So I've had my own emotional journey of exploring who I was very much so 10 years ago, prior to the bombing. And as Dame Susan very beautifully introduced me, who I am today as a peace builder, rather than someone who worked within design. And this brought me to, of course, the, the title of this evening's talk. A journey, I've added some words, a journey of building bridges. And rather than saying instead of walls, I thought that actually it's about building bridges over walls. And the metaphor, the beauty of the metaphor in that piece and particularly hitting for me, being someone who used to work in architecture. So building bridges and building walls was something that I was very familiar with. But the metaphor, I wasn't. Um, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about my life number one, as I call it. And that was the journey of a, a very young girl, in every sense of the word young, who left Adelaide in South Australia. I um, went over to London in the hope of finding not just a job, but finding a career. And I, any of you who are familiar with London will very much know that London, in all her beauty and glory, is actually quite an unforgiving city. And there I was as a very young Adelaide girl, and I'd walk up to anyone who happened to be sitting next to me, or anyone innocently queuing for a coffee, or anyone um, innocently in my viewpoint at all. And I'd say, hello, my name's Jill. What do you do for a living? And these poor people, I mean, I look back now in absolute horror. And I'm sure some of them may put two and two together and think, I know who she is. and I'd have all sorts of array of answers from, from these poor people that would say, oh, I'm a, I'm a lawyer or I'm an artist. And i said, I could do that. That's fantastic. So um, short of stalking people back to their office, I eventually found my beginning in life in London when I was crossing Waterloo Bridge because I gave up on my hope of just falling into this wonderful sequence of a career by finding the right person, because I've always believed in magic. So there I was on Waterloo Bridge. And I was, I was a bit emotional. And I saw this building in the distance. And it was the tallest building that I could see. And I said to myself, that is where I'm going to work. Now I didn't know what they did in this building. And I had to I had that little moment of what if they're a plumbing firm? <laughs> that's okay. I can plumb. That's okay. That, it was meant to be. Um, and I walked over to the front windows of this building and to my absolute delight, what did I see? And that were they were the posters for the front cover of Murray Clare magazine. So, it was the largest publishing house in Europe. And I walked in and I said, oh, fantastic. I finally found where I'm going to work. Of course, this person looked at me a bit puzzled. And I said, oh, I'm I'm here. I'm brilliant. I can write about whatever you want me to write about. And um, anyway, to cut a very long story short, I ended up saying to them, okay, I understand. I will come in for three months every day without pay, and I guarantee you at the end of that three months you will employ me and wonder what did you do without Jill Hicks before this. <laughs> it worked. Um, so I ended up, my, I, I began my career in London working within magazines. That lasted for me all of a good two years before I just thought oh, This is insane. I can't write about another shade of red lipstick again. Um, And there would be meetings about red lipstick, so let's just really tell it for what it is. Um, So I, I felt that I needed to follow my heart, and my heart was always in the arts and architecture and particularly design. I'd always wanted to be an artist, and it was my father who deterred me from that by saying, Jill... You will never make any money unless you're dead. And I thought, okay, that's tricky. Uh, I do need to have a living. I do need to have a career. So eventually I, again, found myself in the, in the role of publishing and ended up um, being the publisher of one of the, well, uh, the, one of the most respected international architecture journals, st- I hope still to this day, and that was a journal called Blueprint. And Blueprint really gave me my introduction to the world of architecture and design and contemporary thinking. I couldn't have asked for a greater life, and London really got under my skin. I couldn't believe that here I was, a woman, a young woman, an Australian, working in a very male-dominated field, but in something I loved, but I really felt that I needed to prove myself above and beyond my colleagues. I think that's possibly why I ended up running the business of the magazine. I was the person that always insisted on very clean, very crisp photography. And I'd almost feel quite annoyed by the idea that one day in this beautiful building that we've just photographed and we've just written about, there'll be people, <laughs> and they'll be messing it up. Um, it's, it's really interesting. That's, that's the absolute truth. That's how I felt that something so beautiful could be tainted by the people that were going to use it. Um, I then had some design consultancies, and I adopted the um, very interesting edition of science. So I was one of the first people to be looking at how does science also help influence, or scientists help influence, our design thinking. Um, I didn't make much money in those design consultancies, and so when the design council came calling and said, we'd like you to come and work with us, I said, yes, please, that would be fantastic. So my remit, very strangely, was... At the Design Council to be in charge of a team of people that was looking at and exploring how can the general public demand design? Because if the general public demand design, then we've got this group of designers who can supply the demand and that way the UK can grow in its profit through design. So that was our remit. I was then given the very interesting uh, project, as an aside, of exploring, and this is quite chilling, exploring how much amputees cost the National Health Service and how can design help lower that cost. So we looked at two exploratory routes, which were one... We found that smoking-related illness and diabetes were the two major causes of amputation. So how could design play a role in lowering those rates? Could redesigning cigarette packets help deter people from smoking? Could getting people more active and changing their diet help deter people from becoming on the road to diabetes? And I remember looking at all of these vast numbers and thinking, I've never met an amputee. Surely there can't be that many amputees in the UK. And then, um, and now I smile about this, and maybe some of you can appreciate what I'm about to say. We had a buzz that ran through the Design Council, and that was everybody was future-proofing. And they were future proofing this and future proofing that. And I remember having meetings with colleagues who didn't work within design, and I'd say, Well, are you future proofing? <laughs> and they'd look at me and go, What? And I'd, you're not future proofing? Oh my God! And I was absolutely shocked that not only were they not future proofing, but they didn't even know they had to. <laughs> How interesting. How interesting hindsight is, and how much I smile now to think, of course, there is no such thing as being able to future proof our future. I lived to work. I was always the first person in the office and always the last to leave. I had a personal relationship with all of the security guards i bring in christmas presents for their families and children and i thought that that was something to be proud of coming through the other side i now look at that life and wish that i had lived more is that gonna work On the morning of July 7, 2005, suddenly, I wasn't a design champion. I wasn't someone who was a little hungover from the very fierce celebrations the night before that London had just successfully won its Olympic bid. And of course, I was getting excited thinking, well, what's our role going to be with design? How can we ensure that this is London's chance to shine internationally? How can design play a huge role in that shining? It was just hours earlier that I would have been having a celebratory glass of red wine. That morning, I was all of these identities. And I must say that the first word there Enemy is something that I've had 10 years to really ponder and think about. That somebody thought of me, labelled me as their enemy. The them as opposed to the us. That was Jermaine Lindsay. Jermaine Lindsay was a 19 year old suicide bomber. And he's taught me my very first valuable lesson from that day. And that is that I should never presume anything about another. He placed me as his enemy. And in doing so, he believed that he legitimized his actions. His ignorance, his arrogance, and his lack of empathy have changed my life and those around me forever. But he's taught me some very powerful lessons. The thing that I've pondered the most, though, over the last 10 years, is he never asked me how wonderful that we're sitting here this evening having a conversation. Because I didn't have the luxury of a conversation at 8.50 a.m. on Thursday, the 7th of July, 2005. It bugs me that he didn't know me. He didn't know I was Jill Hicks. And his actions show me time and time again that no matter who we look like, what we wear, and I thought I was cool. I thought things didn't happen to cool people. It didn't matter. Nothing mattered. I was his enemy. I've often thought, if we did have that conversation, what would have been the alternative? Would there have been an alternative? In the time it takes to just click your fingers, or even just to draw a breath, our world changed forever. And the only way that I can ever really take you through that experience and the impact of that experience is we are very conveniently situated this evening right by a body of water. So imagine in the time that you take your next breath that suddenly we are all in that body of water. We don't know how we got there, we don't know what just happened, but we are together there and our only instinct is, how do I help you? How do you help me? How do we survive? The next label, identity, priority one. Um, That was a triage tag. And I remember vividly seeing that first light appear in the carriage. And that was carried by someone called Tracy who I'll get onto in, in a little while. But Tracy was the first responder into the carriage carrying that torch. And I felt a touch on my shoulder and the words yelled, Priority one. And absolutely every word of the truth, the little bit of Aussie character in me with they still had a sense of humour in that time, thought that does sound a lot better than a two or a three, doesn't it? So I knew absolutely that I am out of there. Um, chillingly though, I ended up as one unknown, estimated female. And that particular label is the thing that's really got to me and indeed shaped my life going forward. Because what that label taught me and showed me was that people actually risked their own lives to come and save one unknown, estimated female. And to them, it didn't matter who I was. It didn't matter whether I was male or female. It didn't matter the colour of my skin. It didn't matter whether I had a faith or no faith at all. It didn't matter if I was rich or poor. It didn't matter if I worked at the design council or not. Nothing mattered other than I was a precious human life. And that has really sat at the core of my being since I saw that label in hospital. I then became, as you can see from my passport, Jill Hicks, an Australian national who'd been living in London for the best part of two decades at the time. Over the course of that day and the last 10 years, I've been so fortunate to be given such incredible insight and knowledge and wisdom through my journey of understanding people. And it's this that I would most love to share with you this evening because uh, these are the things that have had the greatest impact on me. And of course, the first one being people. Ludo beautifully um, spoke this evening about the importance of people and placing people at the centre of design and design thinking, and the impact that has. And I couldn't agree more. I'd like to, um, if if I may, recite a, a beautiful uh, Maori saying, which I'm um, I believe also Ludo. Uh, gave some of this in his opening speech. But, he ha-ha-tea, nui o-tea-ao, he ata, he tonga ata, ata. What is the most important thing in the world? It is the people, it is the people, it is the people. And when I heard that um, just today, I thought absolutely this is how I feel, and that people have made the difference to me it's interesting because the anonymity of um, urban life is something I loved in my life number one particularly in London and I loved the idea of having these unwritten rules of um, in, in commuter travel of no eye contact and absolutely no talking and after nearly 20 years that Adelaide girl certainly wasn't speaking to a soul Um, but had conformed into being a true Londoner. It affects me now deeply that the person who stood between myself and the bomber saved my life. And yet I would not be able to tell you what he looked like. I could feel his breath on my forehead I could feel his warmth on my body, but I wouldn't be able to tell you what his face looked like. I've changed my thinking a lot since those moments. Here's a very particular, poignant um, reminder for me, and this is one of my rescuers. And his name is Andy. And I know all of my rescuers very well. Um, I've tracked them down and made very close friends with them because all I wanted to do was to look at these people in the eye and say, thank you, thank you. I guess the best way for me to share the importance of people for me is to tell you a little bit about... Some of them that have made the most impact. I spoke earlier of Tracy. Tracy is now my closest friend. Her daughter and my daughter are best friends and they FaceTime all the time. And one day I'm looking forward to being able to tell my little Emily just what Tracy means to me and how her actions saved my life. Tracy broke all the rules. And I quite like the idea that we're we're the same age. She was getting married at the end of that July. So she had a lot on the line. She had a lot to risk in risking her life. And Tracy, there was a protocol that, that day of no one up and no one down. And Tracy grabbed her paramedic kit and she said, sorry, I'm going. And with that, every police officer on that platform followed her. So Tracy bought me some precious time that I may not have been given. I was essentially like a human baton that morning, passed from one person to the next. And again, it gets to me that all it would have taken is just one person to give up, just one person to do something differently, and my story may have been very different indeed. There was a, a fantastic man called Dave and Tracy passed me to Dave, a paramedic. and Dave is one of these chaps that you just want on your team. Um, I, I lo- lovingly call him a rescue geek um, because he had he carries the equipment with him all the time regardless of where he is. And um, it was Dave who ordered ice to come from above. And uh, so police officers went to hotel, local hotel and brought ice down to the platform and Dave packed my body with ice. And then my lungs had, had collapsed, my, um, I'd had three cardiac arrests. So Dave got some biros and stuck biros to inflate my lungs and said to a passing by officer, here, blow on this. And to meet all these people now and to hear them recount these stories is quite sensational to think, that's my body. That's my body that they're talking about. But I wasn't Jill. I was still one unknown estimate. Then there's Brian. And Dave passed me to Brian. And... um, I love the story of Brian because Brian still to this day just always likes to feel my pulse, just to make sure it's still there. (laughs) Because Brian had me in the back of his ambulance and he was performing, frantically, CPR. And we were en route to the hospital and Brian tells the story that there was nothing on his monitor, no output, there was no pulse coming from my body and yet I was looking at Brian... And I was talking. So Brian knows me quite well now. And he loves to say, Jill, of course, why would you let a little thing, like being dead, (laughs) shut you up? Um, But it was a great precursor for ensuring that my life was saved later down the line. I must also tell you the story of James and this is how I became Jill Hicks, uh, an Australian national. And James was a detective that was assigned my case at the hospital. And James was, was told I had at most an hour. So he looked at my body and thought, where do I start? How do I find the identity of this person? So he tells me the very harrowing um, story of his plan. When he looked at my face, my eyes blinked. And he said, that's it. I will go through the alphabet, and perhaps this person can blink at the letters to form their name. So you can imagine what I've said to James since, which is, isn't it great that my name's just Jill Hicks? And what would he have done if it was a longer version of something else? Then I thought I'm going to push the envelope a bit further with James and say, "Okay, James, if this ever happens to me again, I'm absolutely going to blink Angelina Jolie. (laughs) Just to see. I want to now tell you the story of Linda who showed me incredible empathy. And I'm telling you these very personal stories because these are the things that have shaped my life going forward. And the very first time that I had to have a shower was quite a daunting experience and especially as a double amputee. I didn't know where to start, I didn't know what I was going to do, how I was going to tackle this. And a very wonderful and compassionate and empathetic nurse called Linda looked at me and she read my face beautifully and understood exactly how I felt. So she hopped into the shower with me in her uniform, in her scrubs, and there we were together, giggling like two silly friends having a shower. And I must say that walk back to my ward of hearing just Linda squelching behind as she pushed the wheelchair is a sound that will stay with me for the rest of my life. There's a saying that really I think sums a lot up and that is that someone, somewhere is feeling the effects of something you have said or done. And it's our personal responsibility to ensure that our actions and our words are always from a position of encouragement and positivity because it makes a difference. Choice is my second insight. Wow, choice. Um, Everything is about our personal choice. When I understood this, it transformed my entire way of looking at my life. Because once I realized that actually choice is something no one can ever take from us. The world may change around us, events may collide to affect us, but we have always got the power to choose how we react and how we respond. And once I understood that, my whole life changed. Because I also then understood about change. And we do fear change. And when I saw this jar, um, I thought, that has to go into the slide album because it summed everything up perfectly. If you fear change, leave it here, Um, because we can choose how we navigate around the changes in our life. I've now adopted um, something that's made things a little easier for me, which is, I should expect change to happen because change happens daily for me on a very physical level. But I should expect it to happen. I won't say I'll embrace it, but I'll expect it and respect it. So now I've added that change should be something that, that in addition to our thinking of expectation of death and taxes, should also come change. Change also um, I took. As a positive for myself because I ensured that I gained a bit of height Um, (laughs) there's a very funny story about this as you possibly would expect for me to say and that is that you probably know I didn't know at the time that we are as tall as our arm span something I should have known and I didn't So when the consultant came into my room to measure me up for my prosthetics, he said, right, Jill, arms out. Let's have a look at how tall you were. And I thought, crumbs. Um, So I was stretching as far as I could. But then I realized, of course, you can't blag a consultant. This guy knows what he's doing. So I, in my best Jill um, voice that I could muster up and my most forceful being, I looked at him and I said, I thought we could use this opportunity for me to take some positives. <laughs> What's he going to say to that, you know? So he said, well, what, what were you thinking? And I said, well, I was thinking, you know, six foot. <laughs> I was just five foot before. Um, I brilliantly walked out of that hospital three and a half months later, standing an impressive five foot eight. And I must say, it was fantastic. So uh, there's not many things that's good about being a double amputee, but five foot eight was one of them. A little quote that I like to use in choice as well, and that is if you can, you should. If you can, you should. The next insight is purpose. Now, this is actually me doing a handstand, which was another, uh, although I'm Australian, I'm rubbish at sport. um, So I feel very embarrassed being in the great company of Dame Susan um, because I am an absolute, I don't tan, I don't drink beer, I shouldn't be Australian of the Year in the UK. um, But I haven't told them, so hopefully the the live streaming of this event, this bit can be bleeped out. Um, What is our life? if it has no meaning? What is our life if we don't have a purpose? What do we wake up every day to do? Who are we? Now, I know in my previous life, life number one, the thing that motivated me was who was I on my business card? That really mattered to me. In life number two, it's about what am I leaving as my legacy? What am I doing every day that leaves my legacy? So they're very different things for me. I now have a short film to play, if that's going to play. And it's silent, so I shall leave you in silence for a minute. So, I'm very proud of that sequence of film. It's one minute, 58 seconds long. And the idea of time is something that is really poignant for me. Um, And in communicating in a very short space of time, equally not saying a single word, but letting my body do the talking, is something that then can transcend divide of language, of culture, of age, um, so and of situations. So this this film is played in schools, this film is played in evenings like this evening. So it transcends events as well. Um, and I'm I'm very proud of it. I did do all the work myself. There is no computer generated imagery. And I the hardest thing to do was to not talk for a minute and fifty eight <laughs> seconds. It was but surely there's something I can say? No, silence. Um, But what I like about this also is I think it's starting to bring in my skills from life one. And that's looking very strongly at choreography, it's looking at symbolism, so feeling very much that what is it with this peace symbolism that we've got an anti-nuclear symbol from the 60s and we've got doves, oh dear. Um, So that's why I felt compelled to say let's rethink what peace looks like. Let's rebrand peace. Let's make peace cool. What if peace wasn't passive but active? Hence, peace being a verb um, was something that came out of our thinking with a group of designers. Um, so it's, it's quite interesting using those skills from life one into life two. The other things that have still carried through from life one is that I still wear black. And, again, I'm quite happy about that, particularly working in the world of peace, that I haven't felt compelled to wear a different colour or to be colourful, but still nod my head to my past. Um, And I still have the same very bad sense of humour, so thank you for the laughter this evening. Um, I'm still very passionate about cities, except now the built environment for me is something that should be serving the people rather than the other way around, rather than icons that create a landscape. And I think that we should be serving the people by absolutely creating the opportunities in which people can do what they do best, and that is to talk, to meet, to socialise, to grow together. The next insight is confidence. Um, I love this image on perspective because for me, it says everything about being confident. When we're confident, I'm not fearful of another's opinion that may be different to my own. Instead, I'm able to stand with, as opposed to someone else and say, that's fabulous, you see four blocks, I see three. Now, let's go and have a drink. Um, And there's nothing that's challenging or fearful or threatening about that exchange of idea. Equally, what would be beautiful is to then, for the characters to walk around to say, how interesting to see that from your perspective. I now see three. Wow. So confidence is such an essential part of our growth together as a community. Confidence also enabled me to walk. And if you can appreciate, I can't feel the ground. So those moments in my glorious five foot eight situation to be told, right, Jill, you've got to take a step. I needed the confidence to be able to take that step. And um, I must say that actually it was people that gave me that sense of confidence. They beautifully, intuitively knew when to hold my hand, but more importantly, when to let go. Because the whole idea of teaching me to walk was that I could have an independent life. Um, I know he'll hate me for saying this, but actually one of my physios was very good looking. And, um, So I didn't mind being a little bit dependent on him and I would sort of say, oh, I don't think I can do that today. Um, I think he needs to hold my hand. And um, so, yes, I did perhaps, maybe I could have walked out two and a half months earlier, but um, (laughs) what do you do? Um, I think the other great thing that they taught me was the confidence to fall. The confidence to fall. What the physios taught me to do was to get back up. Metaphorically and physically, always get back up. So having the confidence to fall was a major part of me feeling that I could have an independent life with prosthetic legs. And I believe Yes, it looks a little disjointed, doesn't it? Um, So that's, again, me having, I guess, a little wink at life number one. But I absolutely firmly believe that the greatest antidote to the things we fear is to have the confidence within ourselves to face them. I was very fortunate that I was taken to a, a hospital that had a culture of permission. And that culture of permission actually stimulated all of the teams, the nurses, the doctors, the cleaning staff, to all feel confident in their actions and what an impact that had on me. Confidence also gave me the strength um, to go and visit the communities where three of the four bombers had come from. And that was in Leeds, in the north of England. And I guess it was the belief of that I needed to reach out and I needed to make a difference. And in my reaching out, their confidence embraced me back. Um, There's a fantastic story attached to this. So I went up to Leeds and I met with the local community leaders. And we were all looking at and exploring ideas, a little bit like a design process of exploring ideas of how can we work together? How can our unity offer a strength at such an awful time? And how do we mend divisive and di- di- division um, within our communities? And so one of the harebrained ideas that I threw onto the table, um, almost expecting the community leaders to laugh was I said what if I walked from Leeds down to London and I went quiet they were quiet then they collectively said what a fantastic idea Um, so I roped myself into walking the length um, I think it was over 500 kilometres it took me a month on the road to walk from Leeds to London And we went through 22 towns and cities. And it's very interesting what you see when you slow down the pace. Walking the distance of 22 towns and cities, meeting with people in those towns and cities and being very slow, certainly gave me a whole new appreciation of what these places are were going through, what their challenges were, and indeed how we can make a difference within those places. Um, Some of the people joining us on the walk halfway through would often say, we're expecting you to be a lot more like Mother Teresa. And I said, yes, but this is actually qu- hurts me quite a lot. And I'd been hungover from the night before drinking with the locals. So um, I wasn't really the mother to raise a figure that they were expecting. But the belief in humanity to get us through, the belief in humanity to come together and to walk and talk with each other was extraordinary. And I remember um, on several occasions just the richness of the conversation, of people having a platform to be able to come together. This is myself with some community uh, religious leaders and I am there representing um, the non-religion of the voice of ideology and how passionate I am about separating an ideology from a religion. So that, that is my position in that line. And these were the guidelines for the walk talkers because, of course, the local police were very concerned that we may have groups that clash. We may have people that don't get along. How are we going to combat that? Um, so everyone was given a little leaflet and this was what they were expected to adhere to um, and it was you know almost pointless by the end of it, I think, thought that people didn't really need to be told how to act, they just did um, and it was a, an amazing thing to see. The other beautiful uh, project idea that we did during the walk, again a thread from my first life, was we gave everyone a little card and that card had a little quote on it that said, I am going to be dedicated to doing X for peace. What are you going to do? And that card was released. So there was this beautiful idea of someone randomly finding in their back garden a balloon with a note that said, I'm going to do this for peace, what are you going to do? And then we had a website where people would come on and say, I've just found this note, Uh, what am I meant to do? Now, bear in mind these were the days before Twitter and how much I would have valued having the beauty of the hashtag now um, for us all to have felt much more immediate in that project. And I, yes, even managed to do the Congo um, as we neared London in the anticipation that it was nearly over. And here we all are in Trafalgar Square. I was surrounded by the paramedics that saved my life. And they came on the journey with me, the entire route from Leeds to London. Because Tracy said to me, you're doing what? I said, I'm walking from Leeds to London. And how much preparation have you done for that? I don't know, nothing. What what preparation do I need to do? Right, I'll rally around the troops. We can't have you kill yourself on the way down. So all of the paramedics on their days off did a rota to join me during the walk. So again, an incredible show of the value of people being everything. again, what spaces can be transformed in to become when people are involved. I rushed to St. Martin Place after the Sydney siege and was overwhelmed by the coming together of people in a sign of solidarity, but also, I think, in a sign of hope, and it it was the hope That really encouraged me and made me feel the most proud and I saw this little message that said may this love that's here spread far and wide not just to heal this city but to go through the world and um, that really touched me because again I was witnessing space within a city in a very different way And of course, being the bridge is a very different um, idea for me now than it was in Life One. Following the I Will Ride With You campaign, I felt absolutely passionate about how do we sustain these messages. So as, as brilliant as the hashtag is, they often offer us spikes in a moment where people can rally together for that day, for that moment, but it's not sustainable. So, I was exploring, how do we create a sustainable gathering? So, a message of being the bridge was what we formed. And that was formed in Sydney, with a variety of people, all from different cultural backgrounds. And we decided that we would send out a message to say to people, wherever there are walls, be the bridge. Wherever there is division, be the bridge. Think about the bridge and the connection between an us and a them. Uh, very, very powerful. And that group still regularly meets. Um, even Emily there in the forefront representing the future bridging. <coughs> and the last insight, which is love. Um, I never talk about love lightly because for me it's something that actually did save my life. The unconditional love shown to me by humanity is something that not just saved my life on July the 7th, but has saved my life every day since. Unconditional love has wrapped me so tightly that any thoughts of bitterness or hatred simply have never been there. Everything has been replaced by the power of love. And I think everything I do has been shaped by the power of love. I went as far to think of a little formula that if love actually is at the seat of everything that's positive, Then, for us to gain this vital confidence to overcome fear, how do we get confident? Then we need to have courage. How do we have courage? We need belief. How do we find belief? We have to have faith. And to have faith, then it's about love, about how we value and love ourselves. And I value and love myself far too much and my life to ever have a moment where I'm filled with hatred for another. I then thought, (laughs) yes, it's dangerous, isn't it, to take love to another level, to take empathy to another level. Imagine if we co-created and built Empathetic communities and as you entered a neighborhood, you saw this sign that didn't say only women with stilettos allowed. What it actually meant was you are now entering a neighborhood that values empathy. Please walk in another's shoes. Imagine that. Then imagine the empathetic park where all the shoes are gathered where there's a space that's absolutely designated and understood that we go there to learn about another, to appreciate another, to stand in their shoes. Then I thought the very familiar campaign of I love, I love New York, I guess is something that most of us would be familiar with. I love Auckland, of course, came to my mind. And I thought that very much is about place, not people. So what would happen if we added three letters? I love Aucklanders. And then we all became the people of the place, not the place. We all celebrated and fell in love with each other as people, not just the place, because as people, we make the place. The buildings serve the people. The people are the king. It's very interesting. I'd love to see this on some T-shirts tomorrow. Um, I've been busily making these today. And here they are as mugs. (laughs) (laughs) And as you can see, there's two there, one for you and one for your friend. At the end, um, I, I, I travel cities far and wide, and I always look for the signs, the little hints, the little things that the city want to say back to me. And this is something that recently was shown to me and in, in, got me in the very right moment, and that was that actually everything is a work in progress. So if we feel that we've taken a step forward And then that's ended up being three steps backward, we should never feel too disheartened because our life, I believe, is a rather fantastic journey and everything we do is about being a work in progress. And I hope that this evening um, I've inspired you all to think about loving Aucklanders um, and I may even stretch you far enough to say, we could change that as well, to say, I love Australians. Um, <laughs> but I don't want to overdo my welcome. So um, thank you so much. It has been a great privilege and pleasure to be with you this evening. Thank you.
1: Thank you are, Wow, I've, I've been doing this for ten years now, and um, well, been in next May actually. I left London um, a year after the, the bombings, actually, and I uh, had a friend who was uh, who was sort of seemed to be caught up in in that last in uh, back in that time. I've actually forgotten about it a lot. So um, yeah, it's it's interesting. Once in a while, you uh, read a book or you watch a movie or hear a story about something that sort of moves you, and. Um, yeah, once in a while you meet someone who does it as well. So tonight we had a bit of a double whammy. <laughs> and um, so thank you, Jill, that was, that was great. So I'm gonna try and um, uh, co- or orchestrate some questions and a bit of a conversation, which is really what Jill wants to, to have here. Um, so I'm gonna ask Susan to come up on stage as well, if that's okay, Susan, and perhaps we can direct all the questions and I'll try to sort of uh, choreograph that as we go forward. So um, would you like a glass of water there? Because you've been chatting away for a while. <laughs> Right. Okay, so let's see how we go and um we'll have some sort of fifteen minutes or so of, of questions. Who'd like to go first? Who's who's brave enough? Who's got who's got the courage? Let's go for it. <laughs> is Susan on is Susan mic'd up as well? Or would we need a Actually maybe Susan can join me up at the stage here? Would that? Oh you would just share that. Perfect. Okay. So who'd like to go first? This lady here. Go Thank for it. You.
0: Thank you very much for coming. I just wanted to ask what's the most common question that you get asked in all of these presentations that you do? I, I think the most common thing is is how am I so happy? How am I able to um, live such a positive life after after what's happened and to work in the in the field I do and how challenging that is um, so I think that's that's the most common question I get answered because again if someone had said to me the day before this is what's going to happen and this is how you're going to live your life I I just would never have been able to comprehend not only just the physical adjustment but how my life has completely changed. Sitting with people who who hold a very extreme view is very different than, than going to work in a very beautiful designed office and that my world has gone from a very crisp, lovely um, scene to being something that's quite raw um, but makes a difference. So it's, I, I feel that I couldn't get further apart from, from what I used to do, which is why the little moments like this evening have uh, moments to celebrate for me because they, they reconnect me to a life I once knew.
1: Great. Right. Anybody else would like to...
2: I wonder what Cantabrians might feel with the I Love Aucklanders t-shirt. <laughs> um, I just was just give a little catalyst for people who might ask a question. It was like this yesterday. People were rather overwhelmed afterwards. Um, Jill not only came and spoke at the diversity forum, but like a lot of speakers, they come and go, do their bit and go. Jill stayed all day, right till the entire end of the whole um, forum. She watched all the community presen- uh, presentations. In my role as race relations commissioner, it's very hard to build those bridges with some communities. You know, I don't come from a vantage point of experience. I don't have lived experience. I'm a white Pākehā woman. It makes it incredibly difficult. Uh, and yesterday, Jill Tomorrow is going to speak at the mosque. It's never happened to a woman in New Zealand. So her story was so powerful to that community's and immediately built that trust. So I just want to congratulate you, Jill, and say you've done something um, that no one else has done in New Zealand. That's after she's going to the Buddhist Temple for the anniversary of 7-Eleven. And, Jill, we like... New Zealanders get really annoyed because Australians claim all the things that are really New Zealand, but you're one thing I wouldn't mind saying that we could have as as one of our own. Thank you. Very
1: good. Gentlemen, right at the front, Um, do you want to shout or? Yeah, yeah, I can do that. Um, Great. Yesterday during the Q&A at the Diversity Forum, someone asked you what motivated you, and your answer was quite surprising and inspiring. I wonder if you could share it with us today. Mm -hmm. Should Um, I just repeat that, just so um, in case you didn't hear? Um, Yesterday when Jill spoke at the Diversity Forum, um, um, you were asked what what inspires you and and what drives you, and uh, uh, there's a question.
0: Um, No, it it was a very good question, and thank you for for asking it tonight, Sean. Um, I'm absolutely motivated by anger. I'm so angry. And as the years go on, and now the days go on, especially now I'm the mother to a a, a very lively two-and-a-half-year-old toddler, um, I can't run after her, and that frustrates me and makes me very angry. So it's the senselessness and therefore the motivation that using anger as a positive motivator to keep me going, to keep me working in a field that's very difficult to find um, immediate feedback and rewards. I don't know whether I'm effective or whether I'm not. And to just feel that actually I need to be angry and to stay angry and to ensure that actually what I'm trying to do is to prevent this happening to anybody else. And not just in countries that we live in, but throughout the world, the senselessness of it is never escapes me. Um, so it's using anger, not for a destructive means, but for a very positive means.
1: Great. There's a lady in the middle here, and then there's somebody at the, the back. In fact, the lady at the back go first, and then the lady in the middle. Thank Hi you.
0: There. Thank you. I um, enjoyed that immensely. Um, I just wanted to ask a question about vulnerability. Um, because you talk about confidence, but I can imagine that through your journey you've faced a huge amount of vulnerability and um, to accept a lot of help along the way. Um, I just wondered if you had any reflections on how you find the strength to accept I don't know whether to thank you or not for that question because I I, I will answer it honestly. I found it the most difficult thing to do, um, particularly being a professional person and then waking up and then being in need and having others to have to help me do something. I found that one of the most difficult things to overcome and still to this day um, I absolutely shy away from having to ask, so I will just work my way around it. Um, If there's anything on the top shelf of anywhere, in a hotel or at home, I would just decide oh, I don't need that after all, it's fine. Um, Because it's the reminder of my incapacity to be able to do everything. Um, Vulnerability is a huge part of my life. And that's why I think I, I talk so much about the need for confidence, because it's about Constantly changing my mindset. Every single moment where I'm walking on a surface that I feel is un- uncharted territory, I feel vulnerable. Uh, walking on wet surfaces, if it's just rained, I feel vulnerable. I liken myself probably to what it feels like to be elderly and, and shaky and worrying about having a fall. Um, Having a fall seems to be the thing that is centred on most people when they're getting older. And they're the things that I worry about. If I break my arm, what will I do? Um, There was three years ago now that I lost my eyesight and it was through optic neuritis, so I just woke up one day and I was blind. And that was the moment for me that I also understood this idea about change of why should I expect that things aren't ever going to still happen just because this has happened. They can still happen. I'm still vulnerable. I'm still susceptible to the course of life. Um, Brilliantly, wonderfully for me, my eyesight returned to about 75%. But that whole addressing that drastic change was... um, well, uncomfortable to say the least, because also it was it was giving up um, my my great independence, and that's what I thrive on and and cherish. I, I must also say, I, I, even being a disabled person in an able-bodied world, that was a huge change for me, because I had no idea that there was still such ignorance around disability. So I would be in a wheelchair and I would pay for something and the change would be given to the person pushing my wheelchair. And I would sort of sit there and think, but do you know that I've run businesses and you don't know? And it, it's gone. It's completely escaped the person that didn't want to engage with me. Um, it's also, I'm quite, I've lost my eardrums, so I have half an eardrum. So also I have a layer of deafness. Um, again, a trouble being in a wheelchair and being so removed from the layer of life. So there are lots of things that really impact life and why it's so important. Those things that I've talked about tonight are absolutely the things that keep me going. Um, And I have to constantly be engaging in my mind every single moment, this is when I need the extra confidence. This is when I need to be confident enough to face the fear of... you know, getting across a room. This is when I need that confidence. This is when I need my courage. This is when I need to love myself. Um, So everything I've spoken about is very true with how I have to live day to day. And I've never been asked that question, so I think thank you. (laughs) Sorry. Fantastic.
1: There's a lady in the middle here who who put her hand up. um, In the middle there. Great, thank you.
0: Hi,
2: I'm interested in um, how your meeting at Leeds went when you went up there. I know you said you met with um, local community leaders, but I just wondered on a wider field how that interaction between yourself and the wider Leeds community
0: went. Uh, Absolutely brilliantly. Um, I've just recently been there again. I was back there for the 10-year... Um, commemoration, and now we're working together with a project called Grow, where we're looking at how um, communities can grow produce and the youth can set up micro-businesses to sell the produce. So our relationship has only, um, I would say, grown and cemented over the years um, to feel that very much when we meet now, we meet as friends and we our families know each other and there's a real sense of being in this together, being in the solution together. Um, What I was never quite ready for was the impact of what this terrorist attack had done to these communities because they felt very much, um, as um, we all did, in shock that this could have come from their community. So for them to be able to work with me has been um, not only healing, but also very progressive and something that's positive for us both to be able to do.
1: Thank you. Okay, gentlemen here on the left. Thanks, Kelly. There you are, sir. There's a oh, microphone. Thank you. I'd, I'd just like to say thanks, um, thanks so much for everything you've said, um, and
0: um, I think you know everyone here sort of feels an affection love for you and, and and the message you've shared, but. We've all come here probably because we do care about peace and to some extent we're all here because we're on your side of the wall. And I just wonder how uh, you find building the bridge over the wall and finding someone who actually is on the other side of the wall, not like all of us here, but people who are imbued with hatred, who are imbued with prejudice, and how you get through to them and possibly even more to the point Uh, how you get through to the prejudices that we carry within ourselves
1: that we put deep down and we deny that we have.
0: I I think on the first part of that, it's the importance of being... continuously being an advocate. And that's a great responsibility for me, that I've got to always be walking my talk and being the advocate for everything I say. So um, in my dealings with with anybody, it's ensuring that I'm always keeping the conversation to the balance of exactly what I've spoken about this evening, of making sure that we are continuously opening ourselves to building bridges. Because walls for us, yes, they keep people out, but they also keep us insular and in, and not expanding our own ideas of things. So when I'm talking with someone whos not who I'm not preaching to the converted, It's about challenging this idea of right and not ever going into the conversation of presuming my righteousness and opening up to say, let's explore your idea of right. And that's why that slide of perspective is so powerful for me because someone saying, I see three, I see four, is exactly the same conversation I have with people that hold a very different idea than me. And sitting with someone, the power for me is having lost both legs because that opens the conversation to a whole other level. I'm never sitting at a table with hatred or bitterness and that's again what the expectation would be. So they're joining me in a conversation expecting me for my very first question to be, why? And I would never ask that. What I look at is how do we create a world together where we can both raise families in confidence that we can live a life without having it cut short by a senseless act. And how do we do that together? And it's about listening as much as I talk and trying to find that common ground. There's always common ground. Um, I found that most powerfully on the walk, of getting people to come together. It's always about finding the common ground and it's always there. You've just got to keep having a long enough conversation to find it. Once we found it, it's like witnessing light bulbs going on and that's the exciting part. Now that journey, that conversation could take years. Um, and in some instances it has taken years for me and this is where the motivation of being angry has to keep me there in the conversation otherwise I say, oh this is too hard Um, so it's, I always, I absolutely believe that we can overcome this but I also believe that we can't bomb an ideology that an ideology is about ideas and ideas that live very firmly in people's hearts and minds and we need to match that with very different ideas and bring people on that journey. It's a long game. There was a, um, during the walk there was a, 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 I was privy to listening to a conversation of two people that had lived across the road from each other for ten years. Um, He was Muslim, she was non-Muslim. And the first thing this woman said to this man is, well, you lot don't like women. And he said, oh, madam, look, that's so wrong. I do like women. I haven't said good morning to you. I haven't greeted you because I felt that you didn't want me to engage. So I just have, have left it, kept myself to myself. I didn't hear what else they were talking about. But within about 10 minutes that they were chatting, I did hear them say, what about the rubbish at number nine? true story and I, and my heart was just filled with that was their common ground they'd both been on the phone to the council they'd both been saying you know and there they were and now they had something in common and it was it was it really got to me really got to me and those sorts of things were happening all the way through that walk
1: fantastic questions i think we we've, we've actually Time is just whizzed by, I don't, know. and um, I think just maybe one last question, just perhaps um, to Dame Susan and yourself, Jill. What what next for you guys? How what happens next with in terms of the Human Rights Commission and and the work of Jill? How, what what are you going to do next? And where do you go? F- where do you go from here?
2: Well, I only met Jill this week, you know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a very good question, and I don't know where to from here, but. Uh just the catalyst was I was in Sydney this year in February at the 40th anniversary of the Race Discrimi- Discrimination Act in, uh, in Sydney at the Australian Human Rights Commission. Presentation was given by two Muslim women who had founded an Islamophobic register so that Muslim women, oh, not just women, but Muslims could feel they had some avenue to report all the appalling things that were happening to them, both at an overt level and at, in, in, you know, all sorts of things. And I heard them talk about Jill... I heard them mentioning Jill's name as this woman who, you know, gave them hope and in the face of everything. And that was when I Googled and did everything and brought her here. In fact, I didn't bring her here. And so if I just give the vote thanks now to the Auckland uh, Council um, and to Minnie, who was the person who instigate initiated the idea of coming to the Auckland Conversations, um, but the gentleman I'd really like to thank who will probably kill me and never speak to me again <laughs> but I'll bear that risk is Sir David Levine who's here with um, his partner uh, Olga. Um, when I wanted to bring Jill here, I mean these things don't just happen so I rang David and he has supported her trip uh, out to New Zealand. Um, Sir David describes himself as an agnostic Jew but he is someone who um, the city and New Zealand has gener- has benefited from all his generosity but he understands what prejudice and intolerance is. And so Jill's left us all tonight with some really interesting messages about our own personal behaviours and attitudes, I think. You know, we're gonna grapple with some difficult issues in the next couple of years. You know, the announcements this week means that there's a certain new population of people that will come and become New Zealanders. You know, let us understand that when a refugee comes to New Zealand, they are a New Zealand resident. They're not those people. So we need to grapple and have these conversations, you know, as hard as they may, you might think four, I might think three, Um, but that's really the challenge that you've, and look, I think it's really nice, I think it would be great if Jill could come to New Zealand and not perhaps give speeches and whatever, but to have those cups of tea conversations with different people, because that's really what needs to uh, happen. So I just want to say thank you, Ludo, on behalf of the Commission um, and David, um, and most importantly, Jill. Um, Jill's daughter's sick, actually. She's back at the hotel not feeling too well, so we'll probably get you on your way. But, and thank you to all of you for opening your hearts and your minds and, and coming to listen to someone who's probably a little bit out of the urban planning space now. Um, and we really, really appreciate it, Ludo. Thank you well, very much. Well.
1: Wow! What a night. So, just it's just left for me to thank you all for coming tonight. Um, thank you to our, our, our sponsors as well, and um, I just want to give a big hand to the uh, our wonderful uh, sort of I suppose la- sign language um, um, interpreters. Who um, this is the first time we've we've done this, I think. And um, yeah, so thank you. Would you mind putting your hands together for them? And um, just a couple of last things. I, I, I love the uh, idea of this, the, the new street design or well, the new street signage. I hate, I hate signs. I think they tell people what to do and people don't like to be told what to do. But I think your sign gives people mission to do whatever they want to do. Um, so I wonder whether we should produce a few of those and, uh, in your honour and, and stick them up in our shared spaces across the city. And that might be something we could uh, remember you you know, going forward as well um, with that. So I think I'll talk to Auckland Transport tomorrow morning or I might I might Tweet it tonight. And I love that, the, the the T-shirt thing is just a great idea. And yeah, people do need to fall in love with Aucklanders and the Aucklanders need to fall in love with themselves. I think there's a there's a whole journey in amongst that. So um, I just think that was a, a really great idea. And I was reflecting on your um, physiotherapy piece and uh, the two and a half months extra of uh, recuperation. <laughs> I shouldn't say this in public probably, but that's uh, probably your Adelaide girl coming out of you there, so. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Jill, and uh, thank you, Susan. Thank you, everyone. Thank you very much.
0: You've been listening to the podcast of Auckland Conversations, brought to you by Auckland Council and our sponsors Jib and Resine. For more information, visit our website, conversations.aucklandcouncil.govt.nz. Auckland Conversations is proudly produced by Tandem Studios.